He's a PhD doc. All right, so I, I gotta I gotta call you Siska now since we've got two doctors on the show. Is there a doctor in the house? All right, bad joke. No, no one's laughing. All right, we'll go with it. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans, it's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. We're the podcast that puts the fun in dysfunction. So without further ado, Mr. Charles Gannon, Chuck, if you please, could you introduce yourself to our audience? Hi, yeah, my name is Chuck Gannon. Uh, I'm pretty much uh, almost exclusively a Bane author, um, and I'm probably best known for hard science fiction with a military espionage um, exploration sort of spin, um, also for alternate history, uh, particularly Eric Flint's 1632 universe. Um, uh, branched out a couple of years ago into um, post-apocalyptic through by borrowing uh, John Ringo's universe for two books, and uh, then last year, uh, epic fantasy that ain't your ain't your daddy's epic fantasy. It's uh, it's got a lot of it's got a lot of the 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 tropes that we love, but they actually get stood on their head. So it's uh, simultaneously it's a it's a uh, a love letter to fantasy, but it's also a poke in the ribs. I, I dig it. So the next part of the introduction, dear listener is how we first found them. So I found Charles, Chuck. I, I keep saying Charles because that's what you publish under. We want yep. people to find you to buy your books. But uh, we, I found him through Doc. So Doc, how did you meet the one, the only, Mr. Dr. Chuck Gannon? Um, I think I was familiar with his work, but then we met at, I want to say it was a Liberty Con. So might have been the Bane Bar. I don't, at Dragon Con, I'm not sure. It was one out of the two. I think the Bane Bar or Dragon Con was the first. It one. was the I I remember I had the whiskey that I bought at Liberty Con with me and we all were drinking it. So and I was watching. And it was amusing. So but um yeah, that's how we really got started talking and I've paneled them for a couple panels in fantasy literature. No, I and you've never had me fantasy. This no, would be different. You but, we did the science, science versus fiction. magic. No, it was a science versus magic on fantasy literature my first year as a director. Uh, did you? It was in a ballroom, and I had to surprise moderate it because her moderator we goes, I'm not moderating it. I'm too tired. So I ended up moderating it. It was very – I had such bad stage fright in that moment because I – No one knew. It was a ballroom set for a 1,000 chairs, and I freaked out going, I don't have to talk. It'll all be okay. And then I did, and I'm like, oh, gosh. Well, the good news is when you were here last time uh, talking about 1632, which was a lot of fun, mm -hmm. I, I did get the audiobook because Doc bugged me and, and enjoyed it. But this time, that. you do, you bug me all the time. Uh, but this time, like because it. we wanted to to break it up, we changed the religion question on you. So so you got to gotta shoot from the hip. Okay. So Mad Max, Planet of the Apes, or Logan's Run is your sci-fi options today. <laughs> he doesn't look keen on any of them. So, probably Planet of the Apes, but only the first movie. Fair. That's fair. I, uh, I, Logan's Run was... would have never, that, that wasn't even on the boat. And again, <laughs> I would have said the same thing about Mad Max. First movie or not at all. I liked the first movie. The other movies in Planet of the Apes kind of started feeling very um, C-rated movie. Oh, yeah. 
Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I do like a cheesy uh, B and C movie, even D list type movies. I'll watch the heck out of them. But uh, but I can recognize that that's not everyone's cup of tea. And I liked them because they're so cringe. You can laugh at them. So but I, I tend to when we have to think outside the box and not do uh, the standard that we always ask if it's the second time guest, I try to theme them by era. So they come out all around the same contemporary. So they were close, according to Google. And if Google is wrong, we will sue them later. Uh, yeah, because I think there's almost, there's got to be at least 15 years between uh, Mad Max and, uh, and Planet of the Apes, the original. Got to be close to that. I have no idea. <laughs> I, I prepped these notes two weeks ago. I, I, my main mind is already You forgotten. stand by. That's your story and you stick to it. Yeah, I'm Absolutely. sticking with it. All right, Doc. Ask the next one before I look like a total fool. Okay. Lord of the Rings, Chronicles of Narnia, or The Wheel of Time? Lord of the Rings. Not that I don't like Wheel of Time. And not that Narnia isn't something. I, Narnia was great to read to kids. Um, that is not what I remember uh, Lewis for. I think uh, his single, I think best work is probably the Screw Tape Letters, and uh, after that, uh, I'm I'm a fan of the Paralandra trilogy. Um, but Narnia is great for kids, and uh, and but I, I mean, for in so many ways, Lord of the Rings put fantasy as we know it on the map. And it was certainly my first experience with it at, at like 12 or 13 years of age. And I was, I was sold and sold hard. So how can I not? I also picked that one. I mean, you, the, the first time you were here, we didn't do the, the sci-fi questions yet. And the second time uh, we were tight on time because of the dragon and there were you and your co-author. So yeah. uh, you hadn't answered, but I also figured since you're an academic and all three of them, I believe were right. They were all, known academically as well. I'm pretty sure if I'm remembering my English lit history from all those years ago. I don't know if... No. Um, I don't think Jordan Robert was. Was, Jordan was, but I know it was continued on by Sanderson, who is an academic as well. Is he an academic or did he simply teach writing courses? It's a little he different. He teaches writing courses yeah. now. Yeah. What, I, what I mean by that is the other... the uh, C.S. Lewis and, and Tolkien were, were hardcore lit people um I thought that, jordan uh, was too but i could be pardon wrong. me i thought jordan was too but i could be wrong he might have been he might have been uh, i it, it certainly hasn't attached itself to his bio with the same uh you know prominence that well you that know what to do has attached to the other two you know what to perhaps do, because listener. they're english and they come to wearing tweed naturally i don't yeah <laughs> and, and dear listener if i'm wrong you know what to do put it in the comment section we'll, we'll have a talk about it and we can blame JR. <laughs> well, we blame Nick Garber. He's not here today. Oh, yeah, but you actually are like our Robert Jordan expert out of the three of us. Doesn't yeah. take much, but. Doesn't take much, but we'll talk about that one off air. All right, move along, Doc. Move along. <laughs> so which was your first love, though, science fiction or fantasy? Science fiction. Absolutely. So um, what was your first memory engaging in speculative fiction? Was it? it well, speculative fiction is a little different. Uh, oh. I, I remember. I remember there were these books that were sort of like um, simpler, less. They were. They were kind of like the Wind in the Willows, but without any significant content. They were these sort of like you know animal books where the animals were characters and would go around and do things. And no, it's not the Care Bears or anything like that. 
Um, but uh, but I, I, I was very interested in animals. You know, I started wanting to be a paleontologist and write about it and then be a zoologist and write about it and then be an astronomer and write about it. Oh, what about an astronaut? Dangerous. But then about, about age 12, I realized what I really want to do is learn about cool things and write about it. And, um, you know, 90, 95% of all those other jobs is fairly isolating. Uh, not that being a writer isn't, but there's a big difference between I am now bending over a rock trying to see if that's a, a, a chip of a tooth or just a piece of white, you know, of white rock. And, and you'll, you'll spend all day long, you know, trying to uncover that when I'm isolated and writing, I'm, it doesn't even feel like I'm writing. I actually feel like I'm channeling. Uh, it, it, the, this, the things in my head uh, are so vivid that, uh, I kind of feel like I'm cheating. I feel like I'm getting credit for something I'm not doing. And maybe, no, 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 no. I think you're doing the hard part because you're actually using the words and the typing thing. Yes, well, the grammar. It's true. I do that. I mean, uh, if you've but ever uh, with me, you know I'm not great at the spelling or the grammar. Probably the first um, novel that people would remember, and that oh, well, no, okay. So when I was about nine or eight, uh, because Scholastic Book Services saved all our lives uh, during the Cold War. Um, there was something called uh, Dick B. Allen's Space Ranger. Uh, and they were a bunch of books where Dig Allen and his erstwhile friends um, took rockets to the different planets and discovered the different life forms that were at all of them. Uh, it was wildly optimistic. It was by that time completely flying in the space, face and space of all known science. But it was, it was, um, it was science light, but it was, you know, the idea was uh, Neptune was cold and this place had more gravity. This place had less gravity. And that was pretty interesting to me. Uh, but the first serious science fiction novel, I would say, I really, really strongly remember is H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. And I still think that that is one of the superlative novels uh, in the field. So. Uh, and now you know much a more about my origins in science fiction than you ever wanted to know. So did you no. ever read the, the juveniles Heinlein wrote? I don't know. I didn't, I didn't even know there were, well, no, I, you know, there's a, I have to say the ju so one or two of the juveniles are the ones I haven't gotten around to. I think the okay. first time, I think the first Heinlein I, I read was Starship Troopers followed okay. by as much as I like Starship Troopers, a very close second is Moon is a Harsh Mistress. That's a See, good one. I looked at my mother and I went, did you know that there were Heinlein juveniles? And she goes, well, of course, I made you read The Moon and the Harsh Mistress. And I went, that was not a Heinlein juvenile. <laughs> <laughs> so she and I had a discussion about that because she made all three of us read it. And for each one of us, that was our first introduction into Heinlein. That's a pretty yep. tough one. That's a pretty tough one. Advanced reading. <laughs> my mother just threw us into the deep end a lot. <laughs> it's the one way to learn to swim. It is, but you know, and get visits from social services. Yeah, <laughs> who's you know, They were a little busy. <laughs> that's what. That's, that's what she. That's what your mom told you. The bottom line was she probably had like a spy camera set up, so she knew when there wasn't anybody in the office. Uh, I really, truly thought that my mom had eyes in the back of her head because she always knew what happened when I was at school. It wasn't until decades later she told me that my friends were coming home and telling her. 
No, she had eyes in the back of her head. It's Great friends. True. Great friends, right? Great friends. <laughs> yeah. My mother's a really sweet lady. She can cut information out of anybody. Uh -oh. So, love, we, while we've covered which one was your first love, what your first memory of it, of engaging in this was, but what is it that you love about science fiction and fantasy? Uh, that, boy, we don't have enough time for that, and I'm not so cruel to you or your listeners. Um, let's just say I, I love the fact that um, you're never done. Uh, the world is always bigger. Um, you, you live in, in a headspace, whether you're reading or writing it, where, uh, it, you, you, you're actually, your job and your enjoyment is to push against convention, not accept it and, and to play with it and see how, what I would call alterity, how could things be different? Um, whether the answer for that is fantasy or science fiction. I do think they do different things. Uh, I think they each have their own, um, what I would call more effective wheelhouse. For instance, when I wrote the, the book that brings me here today, This Broken World, it was a huge amount of fun for me simply because when I'm writing hard science fiction, I believe that the job is to create a you are there feeling. Um, it, the, the, narrative, the, the narrative voice, whatever that is, should not be intruding itself on the action and the and the circumstances it should feel like you're there watching it well we don't have reality narrated for us so um un unless you're off your meds um but, but uh I yeah attacked. <laughs> i wasn't naming any names um but uh but the in when i was writing the fantasy book it gave me the opportunity to uh to play a little bit more with what i would call the poetry of language um some some character types that that are are a little archetypal um one of my favorite characters in in that entire book is the dragon um and uh and for those of you who 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 know me and read the dragon probably probably know that the dragon is in many ways there's 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 the nice tactful things that come out of my mouth and then there's the stuff going on in my head the dragon <laughs> is the unfiltered me uh, in, in a number of ways. Um, and, um, and even so has a conscience. So I guess he's not that much like me, but at any rate, um, do you have a conscience? <laughs> Maybe not when you're oh, grading oh. your students. Huh? Pardon me? I don't know about that. Maybe not when you were grading students' papers and stuff. But. No, that's when I had the most, uh, probably the greatest conscience. Uh, when you oh. have power over other people, you have to be, you have to be responsible. But oh, now I brought that all down, didn't I? Um, but the bottom line is, you get a chance to to have, I would say, to play with the margins. To uh, it doesn't matter if your voice as the author comes out from behind the curtain a little bit more often, and you get a chance to to play with that. For instance, if you just use assonance or alliteration to a lot in a hard science fiction novel, you know, it's sort of like I, I imagine readers sort of sitting there going. Where did that come from? You know, it's, it's, why, why, why does it sound like poetry all the time? You, you can't, it, it can't, the writing can't call a great deal of attention to itself, which is why I find it harder to write um, than fantasy. Fantasy is kind of easy to write, but hard science fiction, you have to get the science as right as you can, but also you have to make the prose engaging 
hopefully moving at times, um, graceful if if possible, and yet people not your reader not being aware of how it's being done. If it, yeah. it it's an impression, hopefully they will come away with, but it never pulls them out of the you are there moment of being inside the narrative. So there you go. That actually sounds like it would be an interesting pan fireside chat for us, Doc. The the types of stories that work best is fantasy or sci-fi, but we don't have that much time when we want to talk about the world, the Broken Worlds novel. So we're gonna we're gonna move on. And uh, how did your love of speculative fiction writ large, so just stories in general, transition into you finally deciding to put pen to paper? It sounded like you wanted to from a young age, but when did that desire to write the stories transition into actually writing them? Seven. I was about okay. seven. Okay, early yeah. achiever. <laughs> I, I remember sitting in a first grade class and, and what really happened was I told the, I told the stories mostly through truly ham-handed cartoons. Um, and, and they were about as lowbrow as you would expect. But the idea of a story, um, that I can't ever remember a time when that did not compel me, when that wasn't sort of my natural, my natural direction. I would say the only thing I probably do more readily uh, than tell a story is, is world build. Uh, world build is something I can do when I'm half asleep, when I have imbibed a little bit more ethanol than perhaps was advisable. Um, and I can still be there asking those questions and sort of just loving the process of every time, every time you, you sort of stick a stake in the immense sandbox that is a world you're building, it has many ramifications and the, the cascade of ramifications is just, that is a place I love to live. That's uh, why game design came very natural to me. Naturally. To me. Okay. So many authors let their own real life experiences influence the ways they tell stories. So is there any specific moment that you feel like is formidable in shaping how you tell your stories? How you tell your stories. That's a, that's a, that's a very, that's a very wide remit. <laughs> I don't know if you mean have experiences informed uh, perspectives on things that I present in my novel or more the styles that I use. you have a preference? Uh, no, we write our questions open-ended because it makes it a little more personal for, the, uh, for everybody because they get to know you as the storyteller. So I will let you answer it how you feel best. The events are, uh, I'll give you an example. Um, I think that uh, in some ways I was very grateful that I had to sort of take a pause in my career um, that was imposed upon me from outside. Um, because when I came back to it and wrote Fire with Fire, um, which is the first novel in the Kane Riordan uh, universe, by the time I wrote that, I had been a Fulbright fellow on two or three occasions. And as a result, and had had a number of embassy grants as well. I'd been to a lot of embassy parties. Um, I was at an embassy party in uh, in the Czech Republic in uh, in 2005 when many things were changing. That was the year of Abu Ghraib. And uh, let me tell you, uh, that was that. There were a lot of eye-opening moments where I can't. I won't say that any of the exchanges. Are directly pulled from that but every environment kind of has its own textures and its own vibe and 
once you're in that vibe, you never forget it. And so that is always there. Uh, I've been in, I've been in the rooms where people are, I'm not saying, well, I don't know. I don't know what they were threatening exactly, but it was very obvious that one or more people had knew what they were talking about very precisely. And in the presence of others were engaging in what I would call a, a, a duel in a secret code. And, uh, and that sort of, uh, that sort of thing, which you don't get that in business because usually that's not how negotiations go in business. I was in TV also, and I would say, um, you know, generally negotiations in business um, are, are slightly less subtle than a sledgehammer. Uh, so, uh, so, so this was, uh, this was another, I guess you could say string for the bow. And, uh, and, and then, uh, I would say there have been a number of writers who very much influenced me and they won't sound, it won't sound like they have a lot in common. Um, uh, but, uh, I'm, I'm losing names right now, if you can believe that. C.J. Sherry's Down Below Station. Mm -hmm. um, uh, God, I can't remember. She's... Uh, oh God. Uh, one, one, of the, one of the famous uh, Southern women writers of the mid-20th century and early 20th century, and I can't think of her name, but, um, uh, but she wrote um, Good Man is Hard to Find. Um, and... Um, and also, uh, who won't sound like this at all, but William Faulkner. One of the things they all had in common was, yeah, I saw you make the Faulkner face. That's mm. probably that's probably because you had professors try to make it very complicated. Actually, I took always the reverse approach. Faulkner is actually pretty simple in a lot of ways, but because what Faulkner has in common with the other two is it's about Flannery O'Connor. Thank you. <laughs> yes, Flannery O'Connor. Um, they're they're pitiless. All three of those authors are pitiless, and there is a kind of sparse witness that they put in their fiction. You might not think that's the case with Faulkner, but one of the things that I will challenge you to do with Faulkner is find a moment where Faulkner's own voice, where he actually intrudes his opinion upon what's going on. He doesn't. No, he, he doesn't. He's just very long-winded. He can be long-winded, but I can point you in novels where he's not. Um, but uh, but at any rate, not here to sell William Faulkner. William Faulkner, as far as my, my quick takeaway on William Faulkner is, Faulkner pushed the limits of, uh, of fiction. That's a daring maneuver. And like many daring maneuvers, he crashed and burned as often as he landed it. And that's, that's you know, but that's the nature yeah. of what he was doing. It's the nature of what he was doing. Um, so at any rate, um, those three authors, because there's something about being able to stand back from the story you've created, the characters you've created, the world you've created and let it play. Don't put a halo on anybody. Don't hold back if something uh, uncomfortable is going to happen. Um, uh, you need to let it play. It may not survive the final edit. But all three of those authors, they 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 are not they will not shy away from a difficult scene and a frank presentation of it, and I admire that a great deal. That was a solid answer. Uh, it's insightful. 
she's giving you, Doc, I hope you're taking notes because we're getting more ideas for fireside chat discussions we could have. It's uh, not, not your secretary. That's your job. No, no, no. It's your job. I, don't make me demote you again. All right. So this you're is the part of the... I think you're confused, but we'll figure it out later. So this is the part of the Gee, it's interview. getting awful late, and I got to wash a cat that I don't own, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the part of the interview where we normally ask you about your service. But but as you mentioned in the pre-show, you didn't actually serve yourself, but you were surrounded a lot by the military. So would you like to uh, clue some of our, our audience in so that way they can understand what perspective you bring to the table? Sure. I well, I bring more perspective now that I have two boys in the Army. Um, and so I know that, that uh, although everybody knows about the 75th Ranger Regiment, they don't know that one is called, one because they're three battalions, one is called Frat Bat, the other one is called Sad Bat, and the other one's called Mad Bat. And I can tell you why they're called that and where they are. Uh, <laughs> but um, but my own involvement has been, um, first of all, I guess you could say uh, I, I had the benefit of being uh, a child of uh, a veteran and his brothers of World War II um, which was truly not a war that, you know, the, the, the ethos of that war um, of people who, it was a draft, but it was a draft against the Nazis and, and you, you know, the, the incredible uh, ruthless militarism of, of the Chinese government at that time. Um, so that was, uh, I, I was sort of, I guess you could say, from the very first, these were the stories that I heard, and these were the stories of the many ones around me towards which I gravitated, because I think there is nothing quite so compelling as the story of the citizen soldier. I don't mean to say anything negative about the professional soldier, but I guess I would say, if I was living back then, I would say, we need to hear more about the professional soldier. Now we... Can you explain, because it's an interesting distinction, citizen soldier versus professional soldier. Sure. I'm not sure everybody in our audience is going to understand it. And I understand it, and I think JR understands it, but we're also really Fine. big dorks. I'd be, I'd be happy to. Very so. few of the people who went to World War II ever envisioned that as the course mm -hmm. of their life. What happened was the, the nation and arguably the world needed people to to right wrongs and, and create a safer world. Um, but it was, the need was such that they were summoned to do it. Now, whether or not you enlisted or whether or not you were drafted, the bottom line is I know very few people from when I was a kid and, and you, I knew plenty of people who were in their fifties who had been in world war II, and the number of them who said, oh, yes, I, I always intended to make a career out of the military or I intended because I knew there was going to be a G, GI Bill because, of course, no one did know there was going to be a GI Bill in World War II. <laughs> that sort of was one of the things that came out of it. Um, a lot of the big state schools that you look at today, take a look when they started their land grant universities. They started in the 20s, but they really grew with the GI Bill. Um, that was when their populations absolutely exploded. The money poured in. They became research centers because the 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 traditionally the the um, I guess you could say the more elite universities were smaller and they couldn't even grow if they wanted to. Um, so the bottom. So blah, blah, blah. but citizen soldiers they did not make this part of their life. This wasn't going to be a way they were going to get ahead. This wasn't about a pension. This it wasn't about any of that. It was about learning uh, uh, to do, 
to go into combat or serve whatever role one was going to serve as part of the armed forces um, in the in the as a citizen because that was your job as a citizen, not your job that for which you were hired or trained, but it was your duty and a duty you felt inside yourself. Um, a professional soldier, to my mind, is somebody who says, um, like like my two sons, although they're very duty oriented about it, um, <laughs> I'm going to do this. It has benefits connected to it um, in the in the educational framework, in the in the uh, in the retirement framework, um, a variety. But uh, they come to it with a, I think, a different a different mindset. But it's also quite explicable i think it was uh i think it was heinlein and starship troopers who kind of talked about world war ii you know his his character in the 23rd century is looking back and he said you know world war ii that was probably the last war that was fought where you could you could actually sort of be turned around and sent into combat in a reasonable amount of time you know he's you know as he says about the the drop troopers cap troopers and uh, and those who came before you know that that any any soldier now uh, essentially has at least the equivalent of journeyman status in a trade and 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 just watching what's done now and right down on the level of 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 you know anybody who has any sort of specialty and even if not i mean the the amount of technology that's being coordinated combined arms the speed with which it happens um and our model of of uh military art uh, which is which it really focuses on a tremendous amount of um, of the ability to to adapt to given situations. This was always an American strength, but uh, the Germans will tell you that uh, they they had a very different opinion of us by 1944 compared to their first contacts in 42. Um, and but but uh, it is it is truly a, a, a trade. That is a very, very that that is demanding not just physically, but mentally and in terms of discipline, um, and conditioning your mind to be able to go with Tradoc, and then know that this is the moment when now we we make this up as we go along. But we've actually been kind of prepared to do that too. If at, if for no other reason than we have broad knowledge and we've been given confidence in our own ability to do so. So, so what I've done, I guess, is create two different characters there for you. And I think that those characters really, I, I framed them to, I think, call out the distinguishing features of the citizen soldier and the professional soldier. And I will say that used to be the idea is the, you know, you take the moron who couldn't, you know, walk and chew gum at the same time and you throw him in the infantry. That's not true anymore. If you look at the kind of equipment they have to have in a striker or any of the other AP armored personnel carriers that came before or after it, like the amount of technology you have to use to do that. I'm just thinking to myself, we even just my Humvee in Iraq, we had, I was monitoring three comm stations, uh, portable uh, global positioning device that also had like comms with the rear via text. You know, you had all of you, there was just so much involved. I don't think the the stereo uh, we joke about it, but the stereotype of the moron you, you can't do that, not very well. No, I, and I don't the, think there's any job left. Well, I mean, so, go, go ahead. The infantry actually has the highest average general trainability score, and I think that's part of the strength of the infantry. And and some of it's just because you have brilliant people who just want to blow stuff up and have fun, but it's also they they also have the ability to think out of the box and they want that so they but it's do 
the 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 both of my boys are 11 series one is 11 bra well no one's 11 alpha and one is 11 <laughs> charlie um uh, alpha means officer and uh yeah. but he's not the ranger <laughs> the ranger is the one who's uh who's an e5 and has already what he's got uh he has he has his eib he has a pathfinder he has m lock he was airborne from get go um and uh there's one other uh, i'm and i'm not getting it but you get the oh jump master so so the bottom line is that there yes it is an extremely complicated uh job particularly as you get into the more elite units any anybody who is deploying into the field of battle from from above anybody who's jumping in the number of things that you have to know how to do that are actually packed into very small packages that have to be integrated with each other survive drop survive getting dragged around you have to be able to fix them or be able to troubleshoot yep. them, whatever the case may be and you've got to integrate them because if you're not in the net you're dead yep. so so and that's been true pretty much i, I would say since kosovo yeah well um, if not before there was also an article i read that was an interesting article it was a military history article that said that since the time of the roman legion the weight soldiers carry yep. has not really changed but the amount of stuff ha totally has it because we've been able to advance stuff and then shrink it and then we also make stuff lighter but once we make something lighter let's just add this other thing in well that's it that's it which is one of the reasons and now we get to how am i involved in the military uh because starting about 19 uh well, I, I was I was writing about it from a nonfiction standpoint uh, in in two thousand. My my first book was nonfiction. It was called Rumors of War and Infernal Machines. It won the um, American Library Association Choice Award, and uh, it's it's really about how science fiction was in many ways is a sort of thought experiment laboratory for a lot of things that go on in the military. And then in many cases, the cutting edge military things are are sort of in many ways ported by techno thrillers and things like it into a narrative so that people understand them. It's one thing to read about something in a newspaper and, and come away saying, well, does that work? Um, people did not understand, for instance, laser guidance or laser targeting or things like that until probably most of them saw a, a very, very memorable sequ uh, sequence in um, Clear and Present Danger um, where the where they're, they're using you know, a laser pointer that is actually the guide-in bomb I think that's been released from an F-16 that's over the horizon, you know, and um, and to see that uh, is something that you can you can write articles about it and most people just won't get it. Then you see a picture and you say, oh, so I wrote about that and in that book. And uh, as a result of that book, got invited to become part of something called Sigma. Um, it's uh, it's called science. The, the motto is science fiction in the national interest. I think sometimes it's equally global interest, but uh, I've been in the five-sided squirrel cage a, a bunch of times. And um, I think I have directly, most of the most of the three letter and five letters I've been involved with at one point or another, a couple of the three letters not, but all the, all the branches, except for, I think the Coast Guard. So uh, sorry guys, you know. Well, um, Space Force, cause they're new. So 
<laughs> yeah, oh, well, yeah, that's true. That's true. Although, although some of the people that were in the five-sided scroll cage that I consulted with and for uh, are now part of that. So I knew them when. So you could we'll, say we'll call that as tangential and we'll, we'll yeah. accept. Yeah. <laughs> that is all super cool. But we're going to devil into some of your fan experiences now. Have you had any cool fan art or cosplays of one of your characters yet? Yeah, um, very early on, um, a, 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 a great guy uh, at um, at uh, at who goes to LibertyCon most years, he, he, on and off recently. Uh, maybe maybe you know him. His name is, believe it or not, Christopher Robin, um, and he's from he's from Florida. And I actually uh, I created a um, I uh, I Tuckerized him. And his his nickname was Tig, so you can yes, imagine why. I, I have met him. Yes, and uh, and he came as his character. Uh, I think the first year the book was out, and it's been it it happens. You know, mm -hmm. I, I it happens sometimes. Then I'll go for a long time and not see it, and and then again, and then I will see it again. Um, but uh, fan art uh, has happened a lot, uh, actually, um, and from. People that I'm, I'm really flattered that they wanted to, to, to render things. It's usually spacecraft because I describe them, I guess, pretty well or, or pretty in 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 what I would call engaging detail, not dull detail. Um, and uh, and some of those then actually became and evolved into uh, artwork that you can find on my sites. Um, and actually in, are in there, uh, there's an electronic only second edition of fire with fire where a bunch of the spacecraft, um, uh, you can find, uh, the, the guy said, uh, he's a great artist by name instead. And he was doing this work and, and I talked to Tony Weisskopf and I said, um, could we pay him to do these? Uh, cause he's doing some really great work. And she said, yeah, we can drop a few bills that way. So she did. And. Uh, they're there if you want to see them. And he did them like they're engineering blues. They're that precise. Oh, I've seen those. Yeah. They're yeah. good. Yeah. There's one that that is that I, I wish I could show more frequently because the zoom in on it, the detail is, I don't even know what the pixel, you know, the pixel rate on that is, but it's immense. Yeah. Um, no, those are, I really like because I find things like that help me picture the ship and the layout and... Mm -hmm. Because I don't see the distance in my head when you're like, they move 25 meters. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, <right>. <laughs> <laughs> measuring has never been my strong suit. I can pour a drink. I can measure liquids. <laughs> so it's because my first surgeon kept telling me that the one mile, I'm like, isn't that three miles we just ran? Like it's three miles in my car. Like, no, that was only a mile. Okay. Pretty sure it was three miles and they just lied to me. Bastards. Anyway. Yeah. They were just trying to creatively encourage you with alternate facts. Well. Sure. I'm just trying to put a positive spin on life. All right. So if you do uh, do any of these cool fan cosplays, though, he definitely wants to see it. So we'll link his contact information at the end. Sign up for his newsletter, and you can reply with his uh, with those cosplay, and he'd love to see it. I, I, sure. Every I would. I, and the group page has... It's barely a year old. It's already got, I think, 1,100, 1,200 people on it. Uh, you, you, you 
throw some cosplay at me, I'll throw it right up there. And that will be in the show notes as well, dear listener. Mm -hmm. It's a fun group. So we know people have obviously asked for your autograph. How could they not? But do you have a funny autograph story you want to tell us? Uh, funny autograph story. Or what? Or you can tell us about how what the first time it was like to have somebody ask you for your autograph. I don't remember uh, actually. Uh, <laughs> no, I think I, I can't even remember the first time it happened. I think it was in a hallway someplace at, at RavenCon, maybe, and uh, I, it, it stunned me because I think the book was only out for a week or two. It was the very first book. It was, and it was like, really, you have this already? Okay, fine. Um, I didn't know it was a thing. I never have been an autograph collector at all. Uh, my funniest autograph story is actually the autographs that I didn't want, but I got. Um, Greg Bear, um, of, of obvious multiple science fiction and award fame, um, is also was also a member of Sigma. He's alive, but he's not participating anymore. And uh, we were at uh, the Reagan Center in, um, in DC. It was uh, Department of Homeland Security. And I, I talked about, I, we were, um, we, we had a, we had a moment apart and I, I remarked how I, I really admired his book Eon and I really do. Uh, and he said, well, you should bring it in and I'll sign it. I said, oh, I, I, yeah, I don't do that. But I, I said, you know, and I don't, I don't, I'd have to find it. So the next day we again have a moment apart and he comes up to me and he has this, this aggravated look on his face. And he said, okay, here. And he handed me a book. And it was, I think, it was one of his Mars books. And I opened it up. And it was to Chuck Gannon, who pestered me mercilessly for this autograph, Greg Bear. <laughs> and it's sitting <laughs> in my awesome. Right over there. Right that over there. Awesome. Oh, I do have another cool autograph story. But again, hmm. the, one, the only one I ever went to get. Oh, I think I think the best piece, the best novella in science fiction, and arguably one of the best pieces of uh, speculative fiction I've ever read, is a story by the, uh, called titled um, "Kings Who Die." It's by Poul Anderson. It was written in 1967, I think. It was one of my first um, pro appearances at Icon, which was on Long Island, and it was one of the first cons that actually sort of really had a big. Uh, celebrity track and TV track. I mean, before that became a thing, before there were even really Comic-Cons, or be, before they became what they are now, at any rate. Um, and so Poul Anderson was there. And I, I had this thing <laughs> in a collection, Judith Merrill's Year's Best Science Fiction of 1967 or something like this. This is like 93, 94. And I, I, I wait my turn in line. He sees my pro badge. And he's like, what? I said, would you sign this, please? And he, he looked at it because he used, you know, it's High Crusade. He's asked for all the Flandry series, Ed's in Flandry, all of that sort of stuff. He says, this? I said, yeah, would you mind? And uh, and and, uh, and, and he, he signed it and he, he was sort of bemused. And there was a guy, there was somebody else sitting at the table who wasn't signing a lot of books or, or things in general and said, you want me to sign something? I, I you know, I was kind of like, should I know who you are? And I said, uh, well, what, what, what have you written? He said, I haven't written anything. He said, but my name is Deke Slayton. <laughs> so, astronaut for free. Um, it was, uh, yeah, it was, that was one of those moments. I was really glad I went for that autograph. It's the only one I've ever gone for. 
Those are my stories. I, I, I'll take it. They were entertaining. <laughs> Implausible, entertaining. So, um, I'm trying to think. Did you have any weird, funny fan interactions? As Jay yeah. entertained me into ADHDness. Uh, uh, I I have indeed. Um, I would say, but the best one is my is is an experience my son the ranger had and he had it while actually he was going through rasp and he had um so he had one of my books there he was reading it and one of the guys was also in rasp came by and said that's a that's a kind of cool book uh, it's a, i like science fiction he said do you he said i i hear this guy isn't bad <laughs> this one says Oh yeah, really? Okay, so, yeah. It's a uh, his name is fairly well known, and he looked at the spine of the book. Mind you, this is all going on. You know, it says on the spine of the book, Charles E. Gannon, and there's my son sitting right in front of him with the name tag Gannon. Never put it together. <laughs> Never picked up on it. Okay, so someplace I think there's a guy by the name of Eugene who really didn't clue in. But that was, uh, I just always thought that was very funny because on three separate occasions, my son got so obvious. It was it was like everybody was in on the joke. They was like, really? How? What? Yeah. But anyhow, so that's that's probably my, my favorite weird fan interaction that didn't even happen exactly to me. <laughs> in, in the pre-show, you also said that there's a lot of shenanigans that happen at the Bain Bar at the various cons. And I know... In, in Roadshow. Uh, Roadshow. Roadshow. There we go. And I know you frequent Dragon Con and Liberty. So if you're ever there, you should look him up and give him more to talk about. Absolutely. Do please. Do please. The one that I can't remember, but it was it was pretty funny, is that there were... Um, this was when... I, I think it was pretty, pretty early. I think uh, Fire with Fire come out and Trial by Fire come out. And um, I wasn't that well-known effectster yet, despite the fact the books... Had, sold very well both of them have been nominated for the nebula blah 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 but uh but but people had not yet been cursed by by coming into contact with this so um so they were talking about what's this guy like yeah is, do you like his writing yeah it's pretty good i mean but 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 you know i don't think it'd be for everybody and 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 so uh and so they 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 look over me because i'm looking over at them and they say um what do you what do you think about this guy? I said, ah, he's a hack. Yeah. And uh, and then ultimately it was the road show. So then Tony calls me up for the book and I say, excuse me, gotta go. And they're like, <laughs> so that was that was probably it, the story came back now when I was when I had to relive it. So did well, Tony get mad at you for that? Pardon me? Did Tony notice that you'd said that and did she get mad at you? No. No, she, but she's way up on the stage. If you've ever been to Dragon Con, that's a big room. So okay. it is a big room. Was I was getting up and chatting with two, two people. Tony's also used to feral cats who disguise themselves as authors. Sure. All right. All right, Doc. Bring us back on track. You can do it. I know you can. Maybe. There's a track here? Yes. You've done it enough. Yeah. Um, so have you ever spotted somebody in the wild reading one of your books? Yeah. And what was that like? What did you do? 
they were on a plane and i know my stuff isn't very few science fiction books are sold in airports uh mm -hmm. that's not where they're usually sold and this was a trade paperback so i was trying to figure the thing that impressed me most about it was they're either desperate and this was like in their luggage or something like that or they cared enough to take a trade paperback with them on a plane which they couldn't have bought in the airport so it, it wasn't it wasn't an impulse buy or an impulse read so um so i guess you could say the first time i saw it i i kind of i was diagnosing what it must mean uh <laughs> so I, I stepped on my own moment of uh of i suppose enjoyment although frankly usually by the time a moment like that happens my head is in another project it's usually in several other projects and it's it but i kind of like it that way um i think that if you spend too much of, there's a there's some french guy who wrote french guy he's probably one of the most famous authors in, in, in french literature of the i think 1700s and he he wrote something to the effect that um jerry purnell was fond of saying this he's a friend of mine uh he said um he, he would quote this guy and he would say i i go with him I said, what do you mean? He said, he said, I do not like writing, but I love having written. Um, and I'm the guy who likes writing. Uh, I, it, when I'm done, by the time it comes out, it's like, oh, yeah, 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 that. You know, how's it doing? <laughs> because, because I'm not doing it. I mean, it's nice. It's Believe me, believe me. Uh, accolades are nice when you get them. Um, but my attitude is really one of gratitude. Uh, I didn't mean to rhyme, but sometimes it happens. Uh, but I, I say this, and I mean this honestly. If I could go around to every person who's ever bought one of my books, and so I could hand deliver the book to them and say, thank you, uh, I would do that, except for, of course, I, I'm sure I'd be on wanted posters all over the nation if I did that. Uh, not not a little stalkery there, eh? Um, but... Um, at any rate, that's uh, that's how I feel. Uh, yeah, my the, I don't, I'm not in it for the the pats on the back. I, it's nice when they come, but I'm just grateful that people want to read what I write because a lot of what I write, um, <clears throat> that's a that's a different fireside chat. But <laughs> there's a lot of stuff I would say in most every one of my books. Certainly, my the books set in my own worlds that um if you read them a second time or a third time you may see things you didn't see the first time and that's quite intentional and as a matter of fact there are different threads and different series which have yet to intersect and when they do i think i i expect as many reactions of either one of these types that's so cool or i'm gonna kill him uh, it's, you know, I, I, and maybe from the same person. So, you know, um, <laughs> but I, I guess you could say that for me, the interest is, is in how the, all the, the different threads weave together. Okay. And so the, the, the news for you listening though, if you do get the, I want to kill him reaction, probably best not to tell him because he does know a lot of people with the alphabet boys and friends in the Ranger regiments, just probably a bad idea. Just keep it to yourself. For your own safety, of course. But uh, this is the moment where we're going to This is the smile of a guy who signed way too many NDAs. Anyhow. <laughs> Understood. So this is, this is the part where we pause and we shamelessly shill for the man. The war between Al Masiya and the Empire of Kolokovia is in its hundredth year. 
casualties grow on both sides as the conflict leaves no corner of the world untouched. Alarian Glaskov's quiet life on the fringes of the Empire is thrown into chaos when an impossible tragedy strikes his village. When he is conscripted into the Tsarist military, he is sent to serve in The Wall, an elite regiment that pilots suits of armors made from the husks of dead golems. But the Great War is not the only, or even the worst, danger facing Valerian, as he is caught in a millennia-old conflict between two goddesses. He must survive the ravages of trench warfare, horrific monsters from another world, and the treacherous internal politics of the country he serves. Servants of War, New Military Fantasy by Master of Horror Steve Diamond and international bestseller Larry Correa. Available on Amazon or wherever fine books are sold. Pick up your copy today. All right. Thank you for sticking with us. And uh, we welcome back from that commercial interlude. So uh, this is the part of the introduction, an hour in, where we tell us uh, the Reader's Digest version of your body of works. I'm supposed to do that? Yeah. Good grief. The ones you're most, the, the, uh, the ones we kind of gave it to us maybe? in the. I beg your pardon. Well, <laughs> so anyhow, well, this is the book I'm here hawking today. Yay. All right. Well, since we're gonna do that, then let's put the cover up. Okay. And uh, so, Ooh. what's the story? Doc is is reminding me that when you did the introduction, you did a little bit of that, and and I should have marked that off. She makes fun of me like that, so sue me. All right, so uh, well, not really because I'm poor, but uh, but this is the cover. So what's the story behind the art for this cover? I know you work with the artist at Bain, but how do, how does the the art process happen for this? For this, it was um, this is a um, cover by Kurt, and uh, and he's he did a great job of that. I wish you could see the back. Oh, I wish you could see the back. Um, See if I can. You, you even you have to have actually it in front of you. the The dragon's head is a very, very faint scaled outline on a patterned back. Um, the art for this was um, really quite collaborative. Um, we talked about the kind of dragon it would be. Um, there are things in that image which are very, very purposeful. Um, for something called the broken world, you might say, "Why do I see a Taiji symbol?" Uh, that's the sort of what people call yin-yang or the Zen symbol. Um, and that's quite, quite intentional, as you'll notice up top. Although it's called This Broken World, it is book one of the Vortex of World series. And there you see a vortex. But And in, indeed, if if you want to think of it this way, those, those spheres are, in fact, the vortex of worlds. Um, but you'll notice that, and, and this was something that I think will be a little bit more pronounced on the next cover, that there is a, um, that there's a sort of silver ring into which they are, th oh, through, that, that they enter into as they begin to spiral out of sight. Um, that's a very important part of the, of the series. You will not exactly see what that means in this book. But very early on in the next book, which is called Into the Vortex, hand hands, um, that will become important. Uh, so the art there was uh, was really a, um, we went through a number of iterations, and that's what we came up with. I, I, I really like what I consider the, I don't know, but the moment I saw the, the, uh, the typeface, I said, oh, oh you know wheel of time <laughs> it looked like wheel of time to me um it has that sort of vibe and you know what it worked for that so I, i'm not going to complain about it um it was uh 
it's a i i really like this cover I, it's it's fairly simple in execution um it doesn't try to create a scene but what it does show you um as the series goes on is going to make more and more sense and it's mysterious okay and so it does sound like a fascinating story and it does sound like a fascinating series but where did you get the premise for this series like what was the the process that led to to you deciding to sit down and tell this story hmm it's a good question <laughs> and after all that's your job you ask good questions um it it emerged i would say out of uh out of there were several threads that got pulled together one of the things in this one that uh that i was uh hmm start again so at any rate i am interested in telling the story of people who are are interested in finding out the truth more than they are being comfortable uh that is very that's a kind of i would say a a um an oft encountered theme in my work it takes shape in different ways um but this is the case this is a case of somebody who is uh um i'm gonna i'm gonna throw two things out there imagine a, a dungeons and dragons session or a game of that kind or just or um so many of the fantasies that are written right and um and the things that happen and the things they encounter and da 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 da, da. now imagine that you're actually there don't you start asking some questions? Don't you start asking questions about, well, you know, gravity seems to work most of the time, but if it worked, that dragon shouldn't be flying. And that giant that's like about 15 or 16 feet tall should pass out the moment it stands up, you know, unless it's got a couple of repeater hearts along the way. Um, there's a, there's a reason why bipeds usually are not <laughs> as big as quadrupeds. Um, and uh, and so that set me off on this idea of what if somebody's uh, encounter with this world was one of curiosity, was one of saying, but how and why? And that is the character here. He is encouraged by his somewhat mysterious parents um, to see the world in certain ways. Um, uh, for, and I won't get into the specifics of it, but the bottom line is it takes his life in a very different direction than he'd planned or wanted. He had visions of being a, 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 a hero and a general in the legions and da, 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 da. And instead they make him first an archivist, then a courier. Um, but after that, they make him an outrider, which is the closest thing, I guess you could say to a, um, to a, 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 a how would I put this? For for those of you who know what long-range patrols units were in Vietnam, it would be that, but more at the level of border watching and um, and uh, being present for for delicate moments of either um, diplomacy, exfiltration, etc. Um, so his his notion of what he was going to be is entirely uh takes an entirely different turn and it's in that turn that he begins to see these things that are quite impossible uh one of the first one he sees and i and and i mean this as simultaneously serious but also like i said a bit of a an elbow in the ribs um 
you know, if 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 you any any fantasy that uses creatures such as uh, orcs or 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 goblins or whatever, you know, whatever these humanoids or ogres or whatever you call them, whatever they are, uh, one of the things that that seems to be almost ubiquitous is that they're not present all the time in the same way. In other words, they eventually they come out as a horde and they go streaming across the land and then they're beaten back usually with terrible, terrible losses by the plucky humans or demi-humans or whoever the hell is there to beat them back. And they go and they lick their wounds in the deep forests or the high mountains or the deep caverns, whatever the case may be, and come back 10 years later. Now, I... This is the moment when, although I do not mention the name Malthus in this book, Malthusian economics really begins to ask a couple of questions. So if they've gone to these distant places where, in fact, prey is not plentiful, how do they manage to reproduce in 10 years to become a horde again? And this is the sort of question that the protagonist, Druidane, asks. And the more questions he asks, the more trouble he's getting into. First, he's sent on kind of pointless missions. Then he's given a very long leave of absence because there are other people who have, I guess you could say, vested power interests uh, who do not find it convenient to have somebody asking these questions. And that's essentially the premise of the book. And now I'm interested. I'm going to have to go see if it's out there on Audible yet. I don't know. No. I don't, it, it might not be. I don't know. Um, so we normally ask for the 30 second elevator pitch, but you've really given us a lot about the story already. Yeah, so what tropes do you feel you had the most fun playing with in this world? Um, assumptions, the, the easy assumptions of archetypes for all, uh, all of the things that I just said, that monsters are, what, they're born to be monsters? Do they see themselves as monsters? You know, is, is that a thing? Um, you know, do, do, so many fantasies, even I would say generally very, very uh, interesting and exciting fantasies, it's remarkable how very often evil is, is sort of like a birthmark. You know, so you didn't ask for it, but you got it. And it's you and, and, and creatures are evil. And therefore it makes them kind of, you know, you, you don't have to think about dispatching them. Do you, you know, it's, it's not, it's, well, they're evil. So you get rid of them. You know, that, I'm not going to say what that reminds me of, but it doesn't remind me of anything particularly good. Uh, there may be some things that are, are, I would say, um, their temperament would make them, a very, very, very bad fit for neighbors. Um, and But that doesn't necessarily mean that there's some sort of supernatural, you know, malign quality to them. You know, sharks, sharks are pretty nasty critters. But, uh, you know, sharks, look, sharks don't think about evil. They don't think about posterity. They don't think about history. They don't think about the, the ratio of the hypotenuse to the legs of the triangle. They think eat, 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 breathe, eat, swim, eat, breathe. You know, that's all they are. We impute evil to them. 
Um, and that's one of the things that was one of the tropes that I really had fun with, both in terms of making people who the, the, the characters in the book from the human lands and the what I will call the, the sort of what they would call the more civilized lands um, don't ever have to come face to face with these things. So, of course, it's it's easy to make them just something to be killed. But of course, what Druidane has to do is, he, in order to figure out what's going on with them, he has to go to where they are. And in the course of going to where they are, he understands, comes to understand that not that they're all that they're all you know lovely creatures and and are deeply misunderstood, but they are misunderstood. And why they do what they do, and how they do it, is one of the things that that he becomes aware of. And I think that the the easy assumptions. And the easy black and white hat sort of uh, notions that that pre prevails in an awful lot of fantasies, that trope, I, I would call it almost a values trope, is definitely something that I have a lot of fun um, sabotaging here. So you've mentioned that in the, in the earlier part of the interview that you do pull some on people that you knew to help inform the types of characters you wrote was this one of the situation where the main character was formed by the needs of the story and you built outwards or did you have an idea of the main character and you fit him into the universe well one of you has a dog that clearly has a very strong opinion about that um he likes your but, books uh, apparently <laughs> either that or a child is being horribly mistreated someplace off camera um uh I, I no, no 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 no, no, child. no, no, no. Okay. So, uh, off the, off the switch. I oh, I was making a joke that no, I put my child to bed ages ago, which okay. he strenuously protested. Yeah. Put him to bed doesn't necessarily mean stays there, though. I, I, I will say from, from definitely personal experience. Um, but, uh, if, Jer, if I could ask you to repeat that again, did I, so how I came as a character? So did you come with the character first and then you fit him into the larger world as the the person with the curious mind? Or did the needs of the story create the character and you develop the personality outward from there? Um, the answer to that is yes. Uh, okay. By which I mean, I don't find myself... I don't know if I... I I'm... I may envy, but I am certainly baffled by authors who can say, I started with the story first, or I started with the character first. It, it, it seems to me the moment I'm starting to think of one, I'm starting to think of the other. And it's, it's sort of like there's going to be a rendezvous someplace out on the horizon that actually is the inception point of where I start writing and the story I'm going to tell. So, um, so I knew a lot about the world. That's because I'd been thinking about this world for a long time. But I'd been thinking about it for so long that actually I wasn't really wed to any of it. Uh, it was it was it changed in a lot of particulars as I as I be, as I came closer to writing about it. Um, but it was also to some degree, I guess you could say, growing up through fantasy. You know, in in the sense of watching watching the easy. Here's the I'm the guy who said I love Lord of the Rings. Right of the three choices you gave me, Lord of the Rings. And yet, what could have more innate evil in it than most of the most of the um the 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 species that that our characters are fighting against in lord of the rings the orcs are irredeemable you know the the nazgul the balrog it, these things are all absolutely you know there 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 is no um 
there's 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 no salvation for any of them right there's no redemption they are what they are they're evil they're 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 things to be knocked down um so it's not like it's not like there isn't good fantasy out there that uses it but uh, for me the way what started happening was i had come up through right reading tolkien and and then seeing people and, and playing DD myself and, and all of this sort of stuff and and you, you you find yourself then getting older and saying well, that's a little bit simplistic isn't it you know and and if i was going to if i was going to sit down and say and and then of course i think sometime in the 80s and the 90s we got the oh the bad guys are misunderstood you know it was that that sort of um came along with deconstruction i think you know it, it was we were there was a i think a very self-conscious movement in fiction in general media in general about that which we used to privilege as good became the evil and that which we had assigned the role of evil became good or misunderstood or or martyred or whatever the case may be and i didn't i mean it was it was a good contrast but i i think both of them were 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 extremes um most most things just have to get along whatever that means for them and the the interesting question for me was how would i answer what would the story be behind these things that my readers are going to recognize from fantasy tropes but then when they get to know them they realize that these tropes are being undone before their eyes and that became you know just uh that told me how would a character how would a character encounter that and and then it just became kind of neat to, to, to take another case of of disappointed expectations where our our main character who seems by the way totally suited to uh to be a to to be a warrior and go off and be a general but, but he's made an archivist and then he's made a courier that's like well what i do wrong you know uh, <laughs> Am, am I going to be selling ice cream next? What 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 happens now? You know, so so a lot of there's a lot of um, I guess you could say um, it's bait and switch with a purpose. Uh, the um, the the tropes you think you're going to get if you follow along are not they they are not what you you encounter in this book. I, I will so, say with some of some of what we've seen with the deconstruction style. You at mm. least seem to be approaching it with love in your heart for the original source material, Absolutely. as opposed to hating everything about it and the people that oh. enjoyed it, and that makes yeah, a no. difference. No, I it it, it um, I don't get me started on deconstruction. That's not a fireside chat. That's a barn. No, have me no, 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 we're okay. good on that. Uh, <laughs> instead, were there any secondary characters that your main character, um, you know, works with that you, you found especially memorable? Yeah, I um the character of Ahern in in this who's who is apparently again he does seem until the very end to be the bluff ready sword swinging type etc 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 always has his always has his eye on the next job always has a, his his you know fingers out ready to grab the next coin and and he's very avid about this but as it goes on he's very orderly about it and there's um I won't spoil it for anybody but uh in the very last pages of the book you'll understand him entirely differently and you will have a 180 i think experience with changing your opinion of him and why he does what he does 
I look forward to it. So is there anything else that other than what you've hinted at that you can tell us about the bad guys in this novel that won't be a spoiler? Because obviously we want people to read the books. Bad guys. Um, there are a lot of species that are inimical. Not because they're evil, but because they, you know, we're either food or in the case of, of some of them, they did just fine when there weren't so many of us. But, you know, the, the good news is, I guess, in terms of the story, you know, that the, that the what I will call, the, what they would call themselves, the civilized races have won. From, from being everybody's victim, they've become largely the, you know, the, the master species of the world. Sound familiar? Um, but the, the bad news there is, you only get to be that pervasive and dominant by essentially pushing other things out of the way. And when you start thinking about where these things live, that they have to go to remote places, that they are in areas where there's not a lot of game, it's not easy to live, and uh, the temperatures, the climates are very often quite pitiless. Um, how would you feel? So, so this is... Um, this is some of the stuff that I'm playing with there. So bad, the bad guys, the bad guys have their day in court, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they, that you could have them as neighbors. Uh, I would say it's, here's what I'm not doing. I'm not, I'm not wagging a finger, you know, a, a remonstrative finger at anybody. I'm simply saying shit happens. Sorry if you have yeah. young listeners. And that sometimes there's a, um, there's a German philosopher who said the definition of tragedy is when two two strong characters have absolute needs that absolutely preclude each other. Life and yeah. death needs that absolutely preclude each other. Now you have tragedy. And that to me is is really what's going on here. You're not going to read this and, and and be finding yourself crying for for you know um uh, uh Antigone or something like this in in at the end of the book. That's that's not what it's going to feel like, but the trying to make everything about a battle between good and evil overlooks, I think, where most strife comes from, which is survival and ignorance. So uh, I would agree hmm? with that. Now that Chuck has given us a very good, very thoughtful, very deep answer, which I'm not even surprised by that you would give us a thoughtful and deep answer. We're going to ask the fun question of the night. Okay. If your characters met you in a back alley, how do you, and knowing what you did to them and knowing who you are, how do you think you'd fare? From this book? Yes. <laughs> well, the protagonist would have said, yeah, you were right, but I still wanted to be a general, damn it. Um, uh, the antagonists, uh, the antagonists would, would shut me up because if I wrote the book, it means I know what the main character knows <laughs> and they would want to do to me what they are trying to do to him towards the end. So, uh, -oh. uh so, so yeah, I wouldn't fear with the antagonists. No, they, cause they'd even be more worried. He stumbled across stuff. They would, they would take one look at me and they'd say, you're the guy behind this? All right, you're out of here. You know, you, you never existed. <laughs> and I can make that happen. 
So often with fantasy worlds and even also with science fiction worlds, the world itself is as much a character as any protagonist and antagonist. So can you give us a bit of what to expect from the world and the world building you did? Because I know you're a world builder. Oh yeah. Uh, That's, that's, I, I I resemble that remark. Yes. Um, (laughs) Uh, Is it a high magic world? Pardon me? Is it like a high magic world? Lots of magic, spells floating everywhere? No, no. Uh, As a matter of fact, one of the things in the very first three or four pages of the book, and I know you know this, Doc, um, (laughs) our our very young protagonist, only nine years of age at that time, goes to the first time he's gone to a real city, and it's a city in, in the empire. They don't live in it but his parents are somehow affiliated with it. And he goes there and he sees ships being apparently magically loaded and unloaded and this, that, and the other thing. And, and, uh, and, and, and then he realizes and he starts looking at it because his dad asks him, how, how do you think they're doing that? Cause he, cause the, the son says, look, I, you know, though in this world, most, most people who use magic are called mantics and they conduct what's called mansory, but that's not all of them. And he he says, well, it can't be that because they're very picky about when they use it and what they use it on. And it's, you know, they would, this would be wasteful. And what he realizes is that in this port, which is fed by a river, which has water wheels on it, they are storing energy through the water wheels that are turning drums that are coiling ropes, which are actually going under the piers and are essentially working like like winches, you know. And he realizes that because he sees the windlass they're using to pull up the anchor. And so the very first things that you got in the book is this tension between the force of magic and the force of, if not technology exactly, an understanding of the physics of the world, which this empire leverages to great advantage in a number of ways. So seeing these sort of things and knowing the limitations of magic and all the rest, then you get to the point where things don't seem to work. Um, one of the one of the perhaps unusual features of this, I don't know any other writer that's done this. Uh, not that, that it's a good idea, but it's one I came up with and I used it. And uh, maybe maybe I'll be maybe the ages will 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 sling scat at me for having having dared to use it. But there are. There are temples, and when you join a temple uh, and you are confirmed in it, uh, you at night you do not have normative what we would consider normative dreams. You go to what's called the creed land, and the creed land of each deity is kind of like a, a, a prelude to what the afterlife will be, and you you and so. So you get a bunch of things going on there. One of them is that you don't have it before then. You do have it after then. And but if you actually become I guess the, you know, cast out, you lose it. Well, if you want to think about the effect that that would have on religious faith that that immediately you say, "Okay, I'm confirmed or I'm uh, this was my bar mitzvah or whatever, and now I can actually see. I'm in this place every night." I never have a bad dream. I never have a nightmare. I'm in the creed land of the deity that I chose and that accepted me. If you think about what that would do to our attitudes about life and death and, and mortality and things like that, 
um, then, then read this book because you're going to see how it changes people. That's the kind of world building you're going to find here, not just in depth where you can look. Oh, and it's got maps. I mean, it's, 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 and it's got the guy who, who did this. They are fantasy maps. You're going to look at this and you're going to say, oh my God, it's old time fantasy. And from the maps, you would think that, yes, but it ain't. Um, but, but it's uh, these, the history of this world is a major part of it because it's not entirely known. And the further on you read, the more you realize how deeply it is not known. Um, I won't spoil it more than that, but um, but it's a um, it's a pretty. There are continents, there are languages, there are there are cultures um, by the score. There are some things that you will recognize there in the way of animals. There are horses. Uh, there are all sorts of animals that we recognize from this world, and then there are things that you don't. Um, that, that is, that could just be chance on my part because I do lots of things by chance. I also have a Brook, a Brooklyn bridge to sell you. Um, so I'll let you, uh, I will let you, uh, sample it. I, I would say it's a pretty, um, it's a pretty detailed, um, smorgasbord. I won't say feast. That's a little too, too self-congratulatory, but there's a lot of tastes in there. Um, and they are uh, they're they're orchestrated for you to enjoy, but also with purpose. Okay, so did you make up your own languages? Did you go full uh, Tolkien? Uh, th that's a that's a okay. So remember, Tolkien was a linguist, right? Um, so for him, that was probably a key way that he understood the world. I don't need that. That you will run into pieces of language, which are in fact not entirely understood, um, where where people think that a word means something and then it means something else. For instance, there is a creature question mark that are, that shows up in this book called a valine, and it translates in an ancient language as restorer, but just what it restores is not really well defined. It could be many things, or it could be something that no one has seen yet. So, but but there are languages. Languages are indeed very important. As a matter of fact, there's a, our, our courier and our archivist in one of the last, in one of the last, I guess you could say, sub-arcs of the story winds up to find out what a, a key missing point of the world's history has to go to, can you guess it? A lost library. On, on the remaining fragment of apparently something that had been an island continent, but during something called the cataclysm, largely went away. And it's as and so while the novel starts with fairly conventional stuff, by the time you're at the end, you hopefully people are, are saying, wow, you know, it, it seemed I started out thinking there wasn't that much to know. Now I know there's a lot to know, and I know that most of these people that I'm reading about don't know it, and they're kind of some of the few that are really encountering it. So, um, so at the risk of sounding unfortunately like a deconstructionist, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. The the presence of the absence of things can be as important and significant as the presence of them in this story. Okay, so speaking of this story. This is currently the first novel, and you list it uh, as the Vortex of Worlds series. So mm -hmm. what is next for the characters in this universe? Oh, my. Well, first of all, they enter the Vortex of Worlds. 
Um, and I won't say how, and I won't say where that takes them. Um, I will say that probably all the characters you would want to see come back do come back, as well as some of the ones you'd rather not. Um, and uh, the these questions that Druidane has been asking in this novel ultimately take him to a place that essentially it, it's one of these, it, it is, it is a, um, it is, I guess you could say a metaphorical uh, representation of the, the notion that if you would know your home, you must leave it. Only once you know another place, can you turn around and sort of see it for what it is? Same thing with your own language. If you only know your own language, you don't realize how much arbitrary stuff there is in your own. Uh, and, and the same thing with cultures. So in this case, in order to get to the, he, he asks all these questions and ultimately does not find any satisfying answers. And beyond that, the lack of answers is potentially dangerous. I won't say to whom or how, but that you read the book for that. But uh, he, he, at the end of the first book, he's told where he pro what he probably is going to need to do is go away to look back on it, to find, to really maybe learn what the answers are. So hence the vortex of worlds. Hence he is going to go to, uh, to a very different place. Um, and, uh, and what he discovers there is um, answers some things, but for every question answered, two more spring up because that annoys and entices readers. <laughs> so, so do you no, think this oh, is going to be a trilogy or more? Well, let's put it like this. When I originally, uh, I, I sent the outline of the series to Tony, the, the three books, and it was contracted as a trilogy. However, now that it's out there, if you look, if, if you were to bring it up, you would see that it's called, Book one of the Vortex of Worlds series. So I don't know. Um, but I, I suspect there's probably, it's a Bane trilogy. You know, there'll be six books in it. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, so normally we would ask you about the science, but you've gone into the detail about the magic and science in this world. So let me ask you this instead, because this could be fun. Uh, if you could live in this world, obviously family man notwithstanding, would you want to? Yeah, sure. Be an interesting world to live in. Absolutely. You know, I'm not sure I could write a world that I wouldn't want to live in at some level. Even a world that's awful, I would, it would, how can I put it? Why would I want to spend time here in a world that I wouldn't want to live in? And I guess that's yeah. probably, that's probably why world building is so important to me because it's probably the only way I can stand doing this for a living. <laughs> It's a good thing you don't so, write Grimdark then. <laughs> you no, know, Grimdark could be very interesting. And, yeah, but you and wouldn't want to necessarily live you, there. Pardon me? I don't you know that you would be very healthy to live in a Grimdark world. It, healthy and happy are different than interesting. <laughs> uh, they can very all true. be present at the same time. But, um, but I would say for people who know me from the Kane Riordan series... Um, I am also right after this, the one, the second one in this series, I'm starting on the sixth cane book, which actually already is about a third done. And while it's not grimdark, it is a very interesting world <laughs> that 
would scare the hell out of me if I had to live there for a day. Yeah. Okay. I can you don't know it yet. You don't know it yet, though, Doc. You don't know. Oh, uh, um, I, I've talked to you, and yeah. if you're going to be scared, I know I don't want to deal with it. <laughs> oh yes, you do. Oh yes, you do. You want to see what yeah. happens? Next. <laughs> you're probably right. I am a glutton for punishment. So, of all the magic in this world, is there something that you would take from this? And put it from that and put it in this world and be like, I'm going to just borrow this, this aspect of this world and bring it over here. So I, this I can use in real life. The what Valine. would it mean? The Valine and what would I you do with it? The Valine that I mentioned earlier. And I can't mm -hmm. say what I would do with it because that would actually define what it really is. Oh, so that's all a mystery. So part of the fun is asking you what you would use and then how you would abuse it. Because everyone's like, oh, I'd use it to solve hunger. And I'm like, no, no, how would you abuse it? But you can't answer that one. That's kind of, oh, that's fun, though. But I get it. You got you can't give any spoilers. So, all right. I guess we'll have to accept that because this is a spoiler-free zone here. <laughs> <laughs> so well, once you've read it, you'll actually realize there were a lot more spoilers than it seemed. Okay, so now I'm going to have to read it and then go back and listen to this again and see what I can pick up. Okay, challenge accepted. <laughs> All right, Doc. Another one hooked. <laughs> All right, Doc. <laughs> Keep going. So you've talked about creatures you've created in this universe. and But is there a way you went about creating them? Did you let biology kind of the in the the environment of the world or were any of them like, I need something that does X. Like, how do you well, go back? Sometimes, sometimes I would say I need something that does X, but that does not biology. Let's put it like this. Um, what may at first seem random is not. And what at, may at first seem like it is supernatural isn't. Uh, there is there is an explanation underlying everything, um, and uh, and so m most of the creatures uh, I know their biologies. I understand it quite well. Um, uh, that there's you might say that's my science fictional habit coming through, um, but also this is a book about the tension between the plausible and the implausible or the explained and the unexplained, or the possible or the impossible. So I need to know where that line is. Because if I don't know where it is, then I'm shining you on. I won't shine a reader on. First of all, it's wrong. Second of all, you guys are too freaking smart. So I'm not going to do that. Usually usually the smart answer is also the, the, the right answer, <laughs> the just answer. Okay. So... Um, this is the part um, where Doc likes to remind everyone that the Dragon Awards are open because you know she's a little bit addicted to the Dragon Con. Uh, but before we uh, wrap this up, was there anything about this series that we didn't ask you that you wanted to tell us? That wait, we wait, no, I, think you've been, I think you've been really thorough, but but apparently Siska has one more question. It's not just that the no Dragon Award no is nominations are open, it's that this book is eligible for a nomination this year and an award that's the important part of this 
And I appreciate that. And I all right. I, and this uh, would be in the fantasy, obviously, category, because uh, you know we like to state the obvious there. Um, <laughs> but so this is the part of the interview, dear listener. While I remind you to please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platforms, your reviews help the right readers find the right books. So do your thing. Uh, and if you buy it over at Bain Books, because that helps the author a little bit more on their website, the authors get a little bit higher. Uh, you could still go over on places like Barnes and Noble, Goodreads, Amazon, and review the book after you buy it from Bain. Uh, and if you don't want to do that, there's BookBub. And if that's too much work, you could just start your own blog and review it all there. That's always helpful. But either way, review the books and, and share what you think about it so other people can find good things to read as well. Uh, so Charles, as we let you go, and as usual, uh, Reminder, dear listener, he writes as Charles Gannon. Can you tell listeners how they can find you? And it'll be in the show notes. Sure. Um, the best place to find me is certainly on Facebook. Um, it is pretty much my only social platform, um, simply because it takes too much time to keep up with the others. And I don't find that it's a good return on investment. But I'm deeply invested in Facebook, even if I'm not there all the time. I have a group page that is for uh, actually my science fiction series, although... Things about this broken world have shown up there. My guess is they're probably going to keep doing that. And that's okay. <laughs> and in the future, people will see just how okay that is. Um, but uh, but the bottom line is that that's a great place to find me. It's, uh, I think, look for Caneverse, uh, which which um, I, I won't try to spell out for you because you're not going to be scribbling it down with a, with a pen, but it's a cane with an E at the end verse and that should do it for you um i have another group page there which is more uh discussion based uh there's my own my own personal uh page and um uh i do have a twitter account it is at ce gannon one and uh i occasionally go there and i mean occasionally um other than that uh, i i have a, a mailing list that it is easy to it is easy to to find out how to how to get there. You can find that through my group page. It's uh, it's also uh, um, you the, probably the fastest way is to go to my web page, which is www.charlesegannon.com. Deeply deeply non-intuitive, um, and uh, you can sign up there. Uh, I am my attitude about mailing lists is essentially that they are i'm not going to try to amuse you i am not going to try to you know essentially prove that i can create more spam than any other human being on the planet particularly media authors um i'm going to i use it as a form and a platform for announcing things for uh running giveaways for doing uh sneak peeks and uh, if i don't have value to add i am not going to take up your time or the space that it takes in your brain to process all the stuff coming in. We have too much stuff coming in as it is. So you'll see, you'll get maybe five or six things a year from me. That would be actually a fairly plentiful year. Um, and otherwise, please come to a con where I am. Please introduce yourself. Uh, I am, I'm just always delighted to meet, to meet readers. And even if you haven't read my work, just uh, people who, who love this field the way I do, always happy to talk to you and meet another one. All right. And you can find us on Twitter where we do engage uh, probably more than we should. 
but uh, don't blame us. We're on Twitter at twitter.com backslash SF underscore fantasy underscore show. Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. And if you can guess what the SF is, put it in the comments below. Uh, you can email us at blastersandbladespodcast at gmail.com. Again, blastersandbladespodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook where all the shenanigans happen at facebook.com backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast. Again, backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast. You can find us on our website at anchor.fm backslash blasters tech and tech blades anchor.fm backslash blasters dash and dash blades, where you can also support the show for as little as 99 cents a month. You'll help keep the lights on. Uh, but if you prefer to do it more directly, we have a support the show option over at buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. Again, buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. And be sure to put in the comment section that it's for the podcast. And I promise I will keep Doc Seska and Nick Garber duly intoxicated. They will drink until their liver surrenders. Never surrender. Nobody likes right. to quit Nobody likes Twitter. Bring it home, Doc. Thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For on behalf of Nick and JR, I'm Seska. This was the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back next week. Same time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, torturing JR, all things that go boom, and of course, books and sci-fi and fantasy. Why not? Go read a book and review it. Thanks for having me on the show, 